Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where you are. Yesterday at this time, you might have remembered, Tori introduced us to this teaching of what's called the three characteristics, or uh, sometimes the Buddha refers to them as these three perceptions. It's a three ways of perceiving that can free the heart. And she shared with us these reflections on one of them, dukkha, you know, which could be translated as suffering or stress or dissatisfaction. And I still have some of those images and stories she shared with us. Do you remember those? The mosquito. That was so striking to me. And the raindrops. And the warbler. Can you be like the warbler, not adding stress to this challenging, challenging, challenging journey? Then, of course, the, the scarecrow. Not being afraid of something that we don't need to be afraid of. And for our time together right now, I'd like to offer you some reflections on another of these um, uh, three, which is going to be impermanence, or the Pali word is anicca. And as I was reflecting on this, I I uh, looked out the window here where I am in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I got to see and be moved by this beautiful example of impermanence, which is all over the place, which are the the kind of the, the beautiful leaves of spring that are on some of the trees in Flagstaff. And maybe some of you know that the, the sometimes the vibrant green that's there and those uh, those budding leaves of spring on especially deciduous trees. It's touching. It's so beautiful. And yet, if that was the only quality of impermanence, the beauty, the joy, I wouldn't have so many problems in my life, right? <laughs> There's another aspect to impermanence. And I think this is why it's such a central teaching for the Buddha that we find is because it's it's the human predicament too, isn't it? You know, the, the great Polish poet, you know, many people feel is the one of the the greater Polish poets of the 20th century, um, uh, Czesław Miłosz, has this great description of this that I feel like captures some of our human situation. He says, the partition separating life from death is so tenuous. The unbelievable fragility of our organism suggests a vision on a screen. A kind of mist condenses itself into a human shape, lasts a moment, and then scatters. That's our situation, isn't it? The, the unbelievable fragility of this organism, you know, suggests a vision on a screen, a kind of mist condenses itself into a human shape, lasts a moment and scatters.
this fragility of our own lives. This is, this is a quality of impermanence, the fragility of the lives of others. And it points to such a big challenge around being a human being that probably all of us have experienced some flavor of in our lives, which is this experience of loss. It impacts the heart. Whether that's the loss of loved ones, of our health, of abilities, the loss of a job, the loss of a lover, the loss of safety, the loss of care, the loss of connection. So I want to begin with that of just acknowledging, you know, it can be very difficult at times to live in this impermanent world of ours and experience such loss. I want to state the obvious. Life is incredibly difficult at times when it comes to impermanence. And this is also why I wanted to begin with the leaves. I'm not denying the pleasant, wonderful things that come from impermanence. But part of this spiritual practice is to begin to notice how our stress, our discontent, our suffering comes with how we're relating to the impermanent nature of this world that we live in. And and this is where the freedom is, is, is when I can start to gain insight, or you could say I can get a deeper feeling, a deeper sense of impermanence. And I think this is, what the Buddha is, is pointing to around this, quality of impermanence in this teaching around the three characteristics, or I like to call them the three perceptions, which I'll get into. And I'd like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, Ananda, Ananda was the Buddha's attendant, and he was also the Buddha's cousin. They're they're quite close. And the other monastics, they were, they were hanging out in the assembly hall, you could say in the meditation hall, and Jetta's Grove and not the Pindika's Park. And they'd just gone for alms round and finished their meal and hanging out. It's the way I imagine it. And Ananda starts to share with the monastics. He's, he's just sharing like the, the many wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha, which makes sense. They're so close. Ananda has so much love for the Buddha, and also is so moved by him. So he's sharing and sharing. And then the Buddha arrives. And of course, what I imagine is Ananda kind of halts. <laughs> and then the Buddha says, Ananda, please continue. You know, I re- really love to hear what you have to say. And so Ananda continues about these wonderful and marvelous qualities. Like the Like the Buddha, he was able to know about all of the Buddhas of the past, their name and their clan. And that the Buddha spent a whole life in this other realm to Sita heaven before becoming Siddhartha Gautama. 
And there was a great immeasurable light that shone when he entered his mother's womb. And also the world shook and quaked at that moment. And when he was born, jets of water coming from the sky to bathe him and his mother. These were some of the wonderful and marvelous qualities that Ananda was talking about. And then the Buddha says something really interesting. And I want to share with you because I think it's an, uh, an interesting turn. He says, that being so, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. And Tathagata is just a, another uh, name for the Buddha. And then the Buddha says, here, Ananda, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Isn't that an interesting response from the Buddha? I, I feel like the Buddha is kind of gently pointing out in this instance to Ananda what is truly marvelous and wonderful, not all those kind of supernatural things. It's this ability to see clearly with mindfulness, with acceptance, how experience is continually arising and passing away. And what makes it wonderful and marvelous? is to bring mindfulness, to bring presence in a way that we're, we're beholding, we're feeling arising and passing away in a way that brings healing, that brings liberation to our lives. And this is the, the trick is learning this art of really allowing into your heart's impermanence in a way that's freeing. Maybe you're like me. I, I got it down, like allowing impermanence into my heart in a way that's overwhelming and causes suffering. I got it down. (laughs) This is something different. And really the practice of this is is so simple. There's going to be some nuance I want to share with you, especially tomorrow morning. But it's basically these two things now. One that we've been talking about, simply noticing what's happening. Tori was going over this again and again, and, and she expanded it this morning of like also noticing only that what's happening, like a thought, but maybe it's an unpleasant thought. So you're noticing what's happening. You notice the texture of your experience. And it's also being aware of what happens next to it, the sensitivity to change. It can be so simple, like the sound of my voice, it arises and it passes away. And sometimes when I speak, it lingers. I say more words. I mumble so it blends together and then it passes away. Sensations, thoughts, emotions. 
So how can this lead to transformation for us? I think this is, this is what I want to uh, slow down with and expand. Because I want to point out that all of you know, probably, experience is impermanent. Like, that is not a profound and revolutionary idea. I want to point that out. <laughs> it's not rocket science. It's really simple. Things arise, they pass away. And the reason I'm pointing that out is that the idea of that, the thought that the world is uh, uh, impermanent, that experience is impermanent, is not going to free my heart. It's not going to lead to healing. There has to be something more nuanced happening here. And the difference with practice is to begin to, you could say, perceive impermanence, to get a real feeling for it to fully feel it in a way that is going to be freeing. And this is why the Buddha sometimes talked about these three characteristics. Actually, he didn't call them three characteristics. Often he talked about them as three ways of perceiving, a way of, of, of getting a sense of our experience that's going to free the heart. It's kind of like our hearts, our minds have this faculty. They have this ability to perceive impermanence in all of our senses and seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. And when I refine this faculty, something can transform in my life. You know, it's, it's like, um, thinking of an example of this. You could say in a past life, it's, it's, I, I use this term that it has happened in a past life for me because it feels like it was so long ago. But a long time ago, I used to play clarinet in a jazz band. It was a blast. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I, I thank my fellow musicians uh, during that time because I learned so much from them. I was behind the curve <clears throat> from many of them of really learning that art. And as I was really getting into it, part of learning how to play jazz was also uh, refining this ability to listen to that particular art form. You could say it was refining the particular perceptions, the particular ear to really hear like a melody, harmony, and rhythm. And I remember uh, really getting into John Coltrane. And hopefully for those of you in the Bay Area, you know, like he is hopefully known by many as the patron saint of <laughs> the Bay Area. And, and, and for good reason. He was thought of as a saint because of uh, his incredible virtuosity and creativity and his uh, incredible kind of unique way of hearing music and hearing jazz and taking the next steps. And there were a few things that um, really helped me to start to hear what John Coltrane was doing with music. And part of it was 
I needed to frame the music. I needed to understand the music a little bit because if I didn't, it was just like chaotic kind of general jazz. I couldn't tell from one thing from another. Like understanding and beginning to hear like jazz chord progressions, the standard jazz chord progressions. And then hearing and feeling how John Coltrane was expanding these traditional standard jazz chord progressions to their limit. And he was revolutionary rhythmically, melodically, harmonically. Starting to hear the richness of his sound arising out of his skill, out of his passion. I was training this faculty, training the the ear faculty to hear in a way so that I could be more and more deeply moved by him. And in some ways, this is what we're, we're supporting you in refining is your faculty to be aware of your experience. You know, we're giving these different domains to start to parse apart your experience. Because have you noticed how it can feel like such a jumble? Like experience is washing over us in some way, and it can feel chaotic. And there's this invitation from us just every so often just to notice what's going on and to divide it up a bit. Oh, thinking's happening. That's what that is. Oh, not only is it thinking, there's worry there. There's an emotional quality to it. There's thinking. There's an emotional quality. Oh, there's some sensations to that. Yeah, worry. I can feel the stirring in my stomach. Oh, I'm, I'm learning how to refine this faculty of mindfulness. I notice these things. And of course, the mind gets lost and we come back and we catch some pieces like this. And we're learning this art in this way. And we're just adding this, this other thing to this this sensitivity, this fully feeling and experiencing um, our world from a different vantage point, which is the sensitivity not to change, to impermanence. Kind of like in in music, you get a sense of uh, the the art of of melody and and harmony, but then it's also that you have this other element of rhythm, you could say, of change. And I want to say in some ways it's easier, <laughs> I think, than learning the art of listening to jazz. Like, especially around impermanence, I, I want to be clear about how simple this invitation is that I'm giving you. This invitation to take up a certain way of perceiving your experience. It would be kind of like if I invited you to be sensitive to the color green for a day. And if you were to do that, it's really easy. You, you'll notice how little effort that takes. If I, I was just like, you know, just, just pay attention to the things that have some kind of green hue to them. And then what you'll notice, if you keep that more in the back of your mind than in the front of your mind, it will pop out in all different kinds of places. Oh, there's, oh, there's a little green hue in the floor there. Or, oh, in the wall color there. Or there it is in the, the leaves there. And then it begins to pop out because you've become sensitive to that visual perception. It'd be the same thing with hearing, right? I invited you to pay attention to the sound of birds. There'd be a sensitivity 
this is what we're cultivating is this sensitivity to impermanence and a sensitivity also that I have to say, what is also the key thing with capacity to be touched by impermanence, but in a way that I'm not overwhelmed by it. And this is quite important because some of you might be like, listen, Abraham, like, I, I'm I'm sensitive. Like that's not the problem in my life. Like <laughs> the problem is, is I'm so sensitive that I get overwhelmed. Some of you might feel like that at times. So there's this other elements that we've been talking about, which is you could say softening the heart or this quality of equanimity or acceptance, softening the heart with stability. So to be touched by impermanence with capacity. And I do want to acknowledge something about this retreat, which is, um, I don't know how to say this. I need to pause before I say this. <laughs> May I say it skillfully? <laughs> this is a great retreat. I just want to say that. And the ideal retreat would be if we started a month before this retreat and we spent a month together so you like sign up for the retreat and it's like, you have a month and all we did for a month would be like um, practicing generosity because it feels so good to be generous. And then we would reflect on our goodness, which sometimes is really difficult to do because we're really good at reflecting on where we feel like we're so unskillful or quote unquote bad. But it's like the Buddha was all about like these different kinds of pleasure, like our goodness, like he, there's this, um, practice that we don't talk about so much in the insight meditation tradition called uh, uh, sila nusati or sila nusati, where I reflect on my ethical conduct, but not so much where I'm getting it wrong, where I'm getting it right. And he has these practices like throughout the day to reflect on, you have a lot of goodness in your heart there, you should enjoy it. And he gives these specific reflections like, uh, Oh, I, I'm a person of generosity. Look at, look at, I was, I did a generous act. I helped clean up the city by picking up a piece of trash, even small things like that. Or I get to enjoy all the things I didn't do during the day. Like, well, I didn't yell at anybody today. Oh, that feels so good. And we learn these skills of ease and relaxation that come with this. And as a result of that, it gives a stability for the heart so that we can open up sometimes to the destabilizing qualities that come with impermanence. I, just want to, I also just want to acknowledge these other practices that are so important for the unfolding of this path. One is appreciating your goodness, which there's a lot of just on the screen. I want to really acknowledge. Even if you deny it, I know it. You can't hide it from me. Sorry. And then with that container, it's being sensitive to change and impermanence. On a gross level, the change of seasons, the change of temperature through the day. Babies are born, our friends pass away, our health changes. Throughout the day, your energy levels, have you noticed sometimes you're sleepy, sleepy, groggy, restless? Sometimes mindfulness is present, sometimes it disappears. 
Mindfulness, too, is impermanent. That sight, that sound, that sensation. And part of this sensitivity is also noticing how my heart and mind relate to these changes. This is the the real thing that I want to get down to. And to notice the full range. Sometimes changes are sweet, so sweet and delightful, like the green leaves on the trees I was sharing with you. When the pain in my body goes away from sitting a long time, that feels so good, it's relieving. (laughs) Change can feel good. And my heart delights in it at times. And then others, as I mentioned too, change can be so devastating and and heart-wrenching. And even in just one day, you might notice this, all these different heart responses to change. You might notice some changes you like and love and some changes you hate and don't like. Can you become curious about the emotional responses to impermanence? Like for me, spiritual practice is not becoming an unemotional machine. It's about opening up to these emotional responses to the world that I live in in a way that I'm not as in contention with, that I'm not fighting as much. This leads me to the the second point, because I think it will help help clarify what it means to fully perceive impermanence, to get a feeling for it, to give, give some examples of when my heart is not fully perceiving in this wise way impermanence. And to see some of the elements that are present when I'm not fully taking it in. One example that I come back to again and again is uh, the first car I had after leaving uh, the Zen monastery, after being a Zen monk, the Zen monastery, I, it was a, a used Daihatsu car. I don't know if anybody knows these Daihatsu cars. I had three cylinders and I bought it for $350. Thank you, Melissa, if you're out there. I so appreciate you selling me your car for 350 bucks. It was, uh, it was really, I am grateful to her. The, being a Zen monk was not um, the best decision for kind of my financial future. So um, I was really grateful for her selling me her car for that. And you can imagine, I bought it for 350 bucks and um, it had already been in a number of accidents. And what would happen is, uh, as I had the car, things kept on breaking down. First, it was the passenger window, it it had electrical windows. And each time something would break down, like I think first it's the window, then the radio, then I had a hard time with the, uh, the AC. And each time there was this feeling of like uh, 
assault. Like I couldn't believe it. What's up with the car breaking down? Like this isn't supposed to happen. And it was a shock to my system. Right? And hopefully you would think, Brian, how could you not think your car that you bought for 350 bucks wasn't going to break down? <laughs> but there it was. Like I, I, I wasn't in tune. I wasn't fully feeling impermanence. And it's because there was a few qualities there. One was, it was my car. Right? That, that's what, what made it so difficult for me to fully take in that this car it was impermanent. Right? If, it, if, if it was your car, I would have compassion for you. I'd probably give you a talk on impermanence and how you're caught up in grasping and clinging and I need to practice and let go. You know, I feel for you, but, you know, those things happen. You have to notice that. But when it's my car, oh, Matthew might get into this a little bit of like this identification, this claiming. It blinds me to impermanence in a particular way. And this is what it comes down to is I suffer because I want impermanence on my terms. I fight with it. With the car, I want it to last longer. I want impermanence on my terms. The physical pain or the challenging emotion, I want impermanence on my terms. I want it to go right now, not later, now. It's the fighting, it's the being in contention with impermanence. Have you noticed this? And really, this is one way to define this grasping, this aversion, this checking out. It's my attempt to fight, to brace against impermanence in some way. And it's these attempts that don't work, that make things worse. And I think the reason I want to interweave these with these definitions of grasping, aversion, and checking out is because... uh, that's what it feels like when you start to feel like the sense of the sense of fighting with impermanence where it's just making things worse then you know that that's the definition of reactivity in the heart and mind there it is right i want impermanence on my own terms this is not having this refined faculty fully seeing and feeling impermanence on a deep level that's freeing. Like I know impermanence in the, in those moments, but I haven't fully embodied it. I don't I know, know it through my bones, through my body and my blood. The Zen master I practiced with, <clears throat> he put it well, he said, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm selling round trip tickets to heaven and hell and nobody wants to buy them. What is he saying here? He's, he's saying that we fight this unceasing flow of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. What Tori was talking about this morning. It's exactly what Tori was pointing to. 
And we only want a one-way ticket to heaven and avoid a hell at all costs. Sometimes we get destructive and we want the one-way ticket to hell. But the thing is, is, and Matthew was talking about these peaks and valleys. This is, this is the human predicament. This is what it is. It's, it's this flow of pleasant and unpleasant. This is what it is to be human. And instead of having these unskillful reactive attempts to make impermanence go my way, to have it on my own terms, it's learning to skillfully respond to fully feel impermanence. The the Zen poet Ryokan puts it well. He says, to find the Dharma, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. Can you entrust yourself to the waves? Going back to that that powerful image and story that and poem that Tori shared with us. Mosquito riding the waves of the raindrops. Instead of fighting it, learning to be responsive. What could this look like? What could this feel like? When we start to fully embody this perception, this feeling of impermanence. So again, once upon a time. This is a Taoist story. So remember, Confucius doesn't always look so good in these Taoist stories. Stories. So anyway, one day Confucius and his students were, they're on the edge of this enormous river with so much turbulent water. And right beyond them was this massive waterfall that was going down. And supposedly it went down 350 feet. And as they were there, they noticed there was this woman in the, in the river heading towards the waterfall. And they were alarmed. And she actually went over the waterfall. And Confucius sends his students down there to help her for fear that she had drowned. And by the time they got down there, it was a very difficult winding path to get down there. She's already out of the water, kind of drying her hair and singing. And, and they were so surprised and Confucius, once he got down there, was so surprised and said, you know, I, I'm so surprised. I thought you were maybe some kind of deva or, or sprite. But when I look closely at you, you're just a human being. Like, how did you do that? How did you swim the river and go over the waterfall and not drown? And she said, well, I have no particular way of swimming. I, I began to learn this art at the very, very earliest of time. And it became my nature to practice it. 
And my success, success in it is now as sure as fate. I enter and go down with the water in the very center of its whirl and come up again with, with it when it whirls the other way. I follow the way of the water and do nothing contrary to it of myself. This is how I swim. Maybe this is the way forward. This is the vision of what we can go towards for our freedom. Learning the way of the water. Yeah, responding. Yet not drowning, not fighting. So responding and swimming. And this, I think, is what comes when we start to become sensitive to how our experience arises and passes away within our experience. Because I'm allowing it to impact the heart in a way that the heart starts to begin to learn how to respond rather than fight. And it's this organic process that I feel like is happening in the undercurrent of my meditation practice. As long as I do the work of showing up, of being aware of how experience changes. And I think one of the, the big glitches around the teaching of impermanence that can come is around loss and grief. So I want to point to that because it can be such an interesting conversation, at least in the Buddhist world, of what is it to not fight the flow of loss and grief? What does that look like? And for me, I want to point out my... My sense of awakening is is that it's not that I stop being a human being that has emotions when this heart is free. It's just that I, I ride those waves quite differently. For example, there's an interesting story of the, the Buddha in these early discourses in the suttas. And there's a discourse where the Buddha has just received the... the um, the news that two of his of his uh, closest monastics, the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Mahamogalana, had died relatively close in time together. And upon hearing this, he says something that is so striking. So he's in front of the assembly hall. So there are hundreds of monastics in front of him. And he says, now that the Venerable Sariputta and Mahamogalana are gone, it feels as if this assembly is empty. That's an emotional statement, don't you think? And it, for those of you who have had the experience of deep loss, it can feel like that. Have you ever had that feeling where you're walking around, for example, the home, and the feeling right? It's the palpable feeling of absence of that being that so impacts the heart. And yet the house is full. It could be full with all kinds of people. And yet it feels empty from loss. 
To me, that's a, an emotional statement that the Buddha, the awakened one, is making. And yet he goes on and says, and yet I do not sorrow and do not grieve. For me, he still feels the emotional pain of loss, losing loved ones. It's just that he's not fighting it. And he's maybe touched a deeper place to be with that pain. Now the one one writer uh I feel like put some words to this, the actually philosopher uh Katara Nishida, some of you might know Nishida. He was uh, the founder of the Kyoto School in Japan in the world of philosophy. And he experienced a lot of loss in his life. The death of his first wife and four of his eight children. And and I want to point out, some of you probably know this, there's, there's something quite poignant about losing a child because it feels so wrong to die, to have a child die before you die. It feels like it's out of line of what naturally happens. So he writes this short poem after the the death of his son. He says, having lived, talking about his son, he says, having lived healthily till 23, how could he disappear like a dream? The shock of that. And then three years later, I, I, I feel because of his practice, he, he, he writes another short poem that says, the bottom, of my, the bottom of my soul has such depth, neither joy nor the waves of sorrow can reach it. And the way I take that is, yeah, there's still waves of joy and sorrow, but there's a place in his heart, in his soul, where he can be with it without fighting it. He can follow the way of the water and not drown. And maybe this is what it is to really wake up to impermanence, is to be touched by it. and not needing to fight it or be overwhelmed by it. Because it does, it does give poignancy to living, don't you think? Another another poem that speaks to this, Liesel Mueller's poem, In Passing. It says, how swiftly the strained honey of afternoon light flows into darkness and the closed bud shrugs off its special mystery in order to break into blossom. As if what exists, exists so that it can be lost and become precious.
as if what exists exists so that it can be lost and become precious. Can you taste the preciousness of what exists? So from now until tomorrow morning, I invite you to start to be sensitive to things changing, but just on a very simple level. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to give more details about really expanding the dimensionality of being sensitive to impermanence. But it's like I'm asking you to see the color green, and it's that simple, just noticing like the sound of my voice coming and going. How you might feel energetic now, and an hour later you feel tired. You feel irritable, and then it disappears. You feel hungry, and then you eat, and the hunger disappears. The food touches your tongue, and you taste it. And there's the, the burst of sweetness or bitterness, and then it vanishes especially thoughts. Oh, I was so lost in those, those thoughts. Oh, and then they disappear. I felt so mindful two minutes ago. And then isn't it amazing? Like mindfulness, like disappears. It's so great to notice it around mindfulness because we can judge ourselves about it. It's like, (laughs) it's kind of funny. It's like judging yourself because my voice arises and disappears. And taking it personally. Mindfulness does the same thing. She visits you and then she disappears. And really practices. You're just trying to create an environment so she feels more comfortable hanging out with you. But she really isn't permanent. You can take it personally. It's kind of a drag when you do that. That's fighting impermanence. (laughs) Or you can work with her. Maybe I'll just end with a haiku and then we'll then we'll call it a dharma talk kind of a vision of where we're going haiku from isa on a branch floating down river a cricket singing On a brooch, on a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. So may these reflections lead to the liberation of our hearts and the liberation of all beings' hearts so that we can manifest a cricket singing on the branch floating down river. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.